Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded podcast. Last week I was at the International Football History Conference in Manchester, brilliantly organised as usual by Dr Gary James. So this week's episode is based on the talk I gave at the conference about the problems that we face when talking about the oldest or the first in the history of football. I started thinking about this a few months ago when I was at the John Smith Stadium in Huddersfield. In the corridors under the main stand, there are big graphic panels highlighting Huddersfield Town's firsts. Most famously, they were the first soccer club to win the old First Division Championship three times in a row, in 1924, 25 and 26. A genuinely historic achievement. But other corridor panels also proclaimed that Town were the first club to finish as runners-up in both the First Division and the FA Cup in the same season. They were the first team to play in all four divisions in two different home stadiums. And they were also the first team to incorporate the White Rose of Yorkshire in its club badge. These first were artificially constructed by linking together unconnected facts to develop a heritage brand for the club. It would be easy to mock this type of thing. But, more interestingly, last month Notts County were relegated from League 2, ending their unbroken presence in the Football League since 1888. League 2 relegation robs magpies of their identity, said the BBC News website, because County could no longer call themselves the world's oldest football league club. But this throws up more serious problems than Huddersfield's artificial creation of firsts. The title of oldest football league club conflates two different things. The age of Notts County and its membership of the football league. Now obviously Notts County are a very old club, having been formed in 1862. But their membership of the football league began when it was founded in 1888. And along with nine of the other 12 founding clubs, their membership has been continuous until this year. The age of the club had nothing to do with its membership of the Football League. The two aren't related at all. In fact, it actually obscures the very interesting reasons why County was selected for membership of the Football League. The leaders of the Football League simply felt that County were a better commercial proposition than Notts Forest. As we heard in last week's podcast, County were chosen because the Football League only allowed one team per town and County had better transport links than Notts Forest. To add irony to the situation... It's now Forrest who claimed the title of the oldest club in the Football League, despite not joining it until 1892, once again demonstrating the artificial nature of such titles. The third example of what we might call this artificial first syndrome is the club that claims to be the oldest professional club in the world, Aussie rules team Melbourne FC, the Demons. Melbourne was founded in 1859 and was the most patrician and exclusive football club in Aussie rules. As you might expect of a club formed at that time, it was also very committed to upholding amateur principles. Its members would have been horrified to have the club described as professional. In fact, when Aussie Rules legalised payments for play in 1911, Melbourne still refused to pay its players and remained resolutely amateur until the 1930s. The title of the oldest professional football club yet again pulls together two very different and unconnected things. Melbourne is an old football club. And it is also now a professional club. But it has only been professional since the 1930s, which actually makes it one of the younger professional football clubs in the English-speaking world. So it's very easy to manipulate history to create your own invented tradition. One could just as easily reframe Melbourne's history to declare them the AFL's longest opponents of professionalism, or to call Notts County the least successful surviving original member of the Football League. But neither of these titles would help the club's marketing departments. More importantly, 
these claims flatten history by removing its context, such as why Notts County was selected for the Football League or why Melbourne opposed professionalism and make their stories much less interesting. They reduce history to little more than a contest for artificially created titles and eliminate the job of the historian to explain how and why things happened. We can see similar issues when we look at how firsts have been used in the histories of non-white players in the various football codes. I'll take the example of Rugby Union, in which the first black player to play for England was the great fly-half Jimmy Peters in 1906. But there was one particular problem when we use the word first in these circumstances. First is a word that means the start of a sequence. It requires a second, a third, a fourth and so on. We can see how this problem works if we look at Jimmy Peters as part of a sequence with the second and third Black England internationals. The second Black England Rugby Union international was Chris Oti, shortly followed by Andrew Harriman, 82 years after Peters in 1988. Seen in this context, Jimmy Peters was not the start of a sequence. There was no connection at all between him and Oti or Harriman. Saying that Peters was the first Black international obscures the fact that he was the only black England Rugby Union international between the formation of the RFU in 1871 and 1988, 117 years. This point can also be made about early black players in most of the other football codes. Isolated one-off examples of individual black players are not firsts, they are actually examples of institutional discrimination against non-white footballers. This search for firsts also has dangers for the history of women's football. For example, the famous matches in the north of England in 1887, often seen as among the early pioneers of women's football, were actually organised as music hall entertainment to make money by inviting spectators to make fun of women playing what was portrayed as an exclusively male sport. These matches were not organised to empower women, but to appeal to the misogyny of male spectators. To describe them as first in women's football is to do a disservice to those 19th century women who did play the game seriously. There's one other danger in journalistic uses of first. In most cases, first is an arbitrary distinction based on looking at the past through the perspective of the present day. Take, for example, the first set of football rules, whether you mean Cambridge in 1848, Sheffield in 1858, or the FA in 1863. For those people in Cambridge, Sheffield or London at that time, saying that they were the first would make no sense to them. They did not see themselves as being at the start of football history or beginning a new game. From their perspective, at their time, they were participants in a game that had been played in various ways for a very long time. They did not see themselves as pioneers. All they were trying to do was to come up with a set of rules that they felt was the best way for them to play the game at that particular time, just as had happened many thousands of times in the past. It's our contemporary desire to impose today's definitions of what is and what isn't football that determines who was first. To use an analogy, we can ask who invented the telephone. Now, obviously, it was Alexander Graham Bell in 1876, but not if you're Italian, in which case the inventor of the telephone was Antonio Meucci in 1871. And if you look even further, you'll find that Elijah Gray and a number of other engineers were working at the same time as Bell on the idea of how to transmit voices using electrical current. Alexander Graham Bell was simply the first to patent the telephone and turn it into a commercial business. This is very similar to the development of all modern football codes. Like the telephone, each football code has multiple places of birth and multiple parents. No single person invented the game, nor was there a first holy grail set of rules. 
Football emerged as a collective endeavour of like-minded people seeking a solution to a common problem. For the early telephone engineers, it was how to successfully transmit audio signals. For footballers, it was how to organise an attractive set of roles. The evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould once wrote that most people will choose stories over history every time because creation myths identify heroes and sacred places, while evolutionary stories provide no palpable particular thing as a symbol for reverence, worship or patriotism. But historians carry the responsibility to look beyond first, oldest or foundation stories. Instead, we should focus on the two most important words for a historian, how and why. The story of the emergence of football in all its different forms is far too rich, diverse and complex to be constrained by looking at the past through the perspective of the present, or by the needs of journalists, marketing departments or governing bodies. Most importantly, the development of all codes of football was a collective and often cooperative endeavour, just like playing and watching the game is. That collectivity is perhaps one of football's greatest strengths, however it is played, as well as much of its appeal, and it is something that should be reflected in the ways that we think about the history of the game too. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Rugby Reloaded podcast. If you want to follow me on Twitter, my name is at Collins Tony, and if you want to dig a bit deeper into the history of rugby and the other football codes, take a look at the Rugby Reloaded website at www.rugbyreloaded.com. Until next week, thanks for listening.